Howdy y'all, welcome to the Clan Clinic. Today we're talking with JT Cry at Exit Strategies 360. JT is a business broker specializing in the restoration industry. Today we're talking about the lessons he learned during the last recession and how today's restoration company owner can best capitalize on the current COVID-induced market conditions. Today's episode is brought to you by the professional Xactimate writers over at Claims Delegates. If you like fast, accurate Xactimate estimates to your inbox, check us out at claimsdelegates.com. All right, here we go. We're live. We're good. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Andy McCabe. I am your claim doctor. This is a live recording of the Claim Clinic podcast. At least I hope it's live. I don't know if the stream on Facebook is any good anymore. I've got uh, JT Cry of Exit Strategies 360 on the line. How you doing, man? Excellent. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate it. Yeah. You piqued my interest last week, so I reached out to you and uh, wanted to see if you would come on the podcast and enlighten all of us on the article that you wrote. So before we get into your background and stuff like that. I want to get into this article. I want to, uh, why don't you give us a background on, on what caused you to write this article while I, while I bring it up? Well, I appreciate that, Andrew. Uh, what caused me to write it was uh, I got into the restoration industry just before 2008. I got pulled into it and we can talk more about that later, but I instantly noticed some similarities between what was happening in eight, nine and 10 and now just the last two, three weeks. And it, um, I wanted to point out the gist of the article is that there's a lot of people collectively holding their breath right now on what may or may not happen. But this industry as a whole held up pretty well through eight, nine and 10 and into 11. Mm. And it, we've been on a tear, you know, from 12, 13 through a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So it, um, right up, right up, abrupt stop. <laughs> that's right. We, we hit a wall. So I, I think the gist of it for me was the last two weeks, I fielded a tremendous amount of phone calls from restoration owners asking how it's affecting value, where it's affecting value, how quickly value can be affected. Oof, so I wanted to put this piece out there saying, listen, we can hold our breath here for a few weeks or a month or two, but let's see what happens. But overall, I think we're going to hold up pretty well. Disasters are not stopping. Perfect. All right. Let me, let me read a little bit from this. Restoration industry lessons learned from 2008 recession. Due to the strength of the industry, restoration businesses should be front and center as solid acquisition targets. There are three primary factors driving the value of your restoration business. Business performance, seller's personal timing, and state of the industry and the economy. Is this still a solid business model? What, what got me was I've known, and you've probably known for quite some time, the restoration business model is solid. It's fairly recession resistant uh to nothing that's recession proof but why don't you show why don't you walk us through the difference of the selling and buying environment for restoration companies in 2008-9 versus today well it's a great question um one of the things we learned as you said is that the industry is uh, recession resistant and we we quickly learned it wasn't recession proof right but the difference is are this, and there, there's really two levels we can talk about. One is an M&A level, which is really anything above five and a half to $6 million, anything outside of a, a typical financing or an SBA finance model. And so we, we'll refer to that as sort of an M&A level. So someone, uh, what kind of revenue was someone doing if they're, if they're going to demand that kind of uh, price point? Uh, well, there's a couple of numbers. There's, there's revenue, but it has more to do with your profitability or what we call adjusted earnings, that total mm -hmm. financial benefit 
to a buyer, mm -hmm. uh, to a potential buyer. And so you've got to be in that million five up and up range to, to be in that category. Okay. Most restoration companies I work with are in the three to 500,000 range on up to a million, million two. And there's a few that are larger actually, um, okay. nice size companies. But uh, you know that you're you're kind of in rare air there when you get above a million five in adjusted earnings in this industry. Okay. So what what percentage of the total market would you say is is in that? You know how many how many operators? Well, I guess let me back up a little bit further. My best guess was there's fifty thousand restoration contractors nationwide. Is that a high number or a low number? That's a high number. Yeah. Okay. The number I've always heard, uh, Andrew, is twenty to twenty three thousand somewhere in okay. that category. Now, right. that being said, that also includes uh, mom and pop, junior, junior's wife, and junior's friend. Yeah. And they've got a carpet cleaning vehicle, maybe a, a couple of extractors. and that's Man in a van do. with a fan. Man that's in a van right. And, and those I love those guys. They're, they're prevalent out there, but they're not that sellable either. Mm -hmm. So there's just too close knit. Somebody can't well, buy a business and you're have- not, You're not buying people. anything. You're buying a person at that point. That's so. right. That's, yeah. that's difficult. You're not buying a real business. So that's right. Um, yeah, let's come back to that. Okay, so percentage wise of the 23,000, there are how many doing, how many restorers doing 2 million plus? In adjusted earnings? Yeah. Oh, ooh, less than 1%, okay. far less than 1%. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm just really giving our audience something, something to aim for. So there's a, yeah. lot of, a lot of small guys out there, and I have a lot of them as clients. So that's why I'm asking. Yeah, there's really three levels of business. There's the mom and pops that we just mentioned, okay. and that probably makes up the bottom 20% of the industry. And then there's this middle chunk that's um, easy 80% of the industry that's, uh, you know, they're doing a million five to million nine. That, that million nine to two million is essentially the cap. It's mm -hmm. about as far as these guys can go without really sophisticated uh, measures, and they, and they need to learn how to duplicate themselves. And they're, they're doing a million, six to million nine in gross sales, and they're throwing off, you know, 400, $600,000, and they're making a great living. So uh, that's really the, the bulk of the industry right there. And they're the ones that get into trouble. Um, they're the ones that bump up against the, the delegation and accountability structures uh, when they try to expand, and mm. they just don't know how to du duplicate themselves. Got it. Got it. Sorry about that. I had to, no worries. The cat was trapped in the room. This is truly post COVID-19 <laughs> scenario. We just, I have a beautiful setup at my office and this is obviously not that. It's all right. We're all in the same boat. <laughs> Good. All right. Let's keep going down through my list of stuff. Uh, let's get back into your, your past experience. How did you get into restoration? What it was about this particular industry uh, that that kind of drew you in? Well, I think the industry found me as much as I found it, Andrew. Right. And I, I was a broker. I've been a broker since 2001. And by 2007, I had sold my seventh or eighth disaster restoration firm. And one of my clients said, listen, JT, no one has talked to us like you're talking to us. Hmm. You understand the language. And that individual made uh, a referral to the RIA to me. Okay. And that led to an invite to a conference. And since then, uh, the, the initial RIA conference has led to uh, DKI and DKC and, and Crawford's and, and Experience and several others. And that led to articles and 
national exposure. So now uh, this industry is about 90% of what I work in uh, nationwide. Right. Is, are, we a, are we the quietest $300 billion industry? That's Absolutely. It's <laughs> no one's heard of us. Astonishing to me how many people don't know that this industry exists. So I've even gone so far as to say you don't know that it exists unless you've had damage of some sort. Right. And then you, you might not even realize that it's different than regular construction. That's right. It's, That's right. it's just fascinating. Yeah, I, I stumbled into this as well. I wasn't never meant to be a restorer. Uh, I just, yeah, this industry has a way of finding people like us, I think. Uh, okay, I'll, we've already talked about the paper a little bit. How did mergers and acquisitions perform in 08, 09? What, what was that business selling environment? That's a, it's a loaded question. And so I'll, I'll hit it from a couple different angles. Sure. The, initially, the, we'll talk just M&A in this industry. How's that? Sure, sure. And initially, the, the, the big boys in the industry and some uh, what we call pegs, the private equity groups and capital groups, they started to take note of this industry in four, five, six, and seven. And I've been uh, touting this horn for a long time and uh, trying to push this industry. And they, they took notice a little bit. Okay. The problem with what happened in eight, nine, and 10 is that a lot of these guys, a lot of these companies were sort of bottom feeding. They were mm. looking for the 65-year-old who was tired, burnout, the industry was changing. They, they were looking for someone just to throw their hat in the ring and say, I'm done. You know, mm -hmm. call, call it off. They were looking for low-hanging fruit. Absolutely, okay. absolutely. And they were getting it, quite frankly. Right. Yeah. There, were, there were guys that, uh, as strong as the industry was in 2008, 9, and 10, there were guys that didn't make it. And, and so these individuals and owners kind of lost in the middle. They really wanted a um, life preserver, and they got it. Uh, in the form of a private equity group. Okay. And so uh, that's, that was how it happened then. And uh, it worked. What's different now, Andrew, is that the, the, uh, everybody's more sophisticated. The owners have had to sharpen their pencils and pay more attention to their business. Mm. They've had to get the job costing softwares, uh, really pay attention on a daily and weekly basis to, to their cash flow. A prior, you know, back, let's back up a couple decades, uh, and it really ended at 8, 9, and 10, is these guys were cutting pretty fat hogs and nice margins, and there was always money in the checkbook. Mm -hmm. And you didn't have to job cost. You didn't have to pay attention uh, to the, there was always decent money in the checkbook. So unless there was severe problems, no one really paid attention. Well, eight, nine or 10 uh, cured us of that disease. And, sure. <laughs> and uh, the, the software has really, really helped out. But those who chose not to pay attention to their business, uh, they've continued to struggle. And everyone's had to sort of step it up a little bit. And it's really helped. Yeah. So now when you, when you talk M&A activity, um, the buyers, uh, the big boys in the industry again, as well as the capital groups who really have, they either own businesses in this space or recognize it as a, as a pretty solid industry, they're looking for long-term partners. They're not looking for the individuals just to, you know, grab the life preserve and hang on. Uh -huh. They really want somebody to join them for the next two, three, four years. Mm. And that has created its own set of issues because. So wait, wait a minute. Uh, explain that to me. So they're they want they're buying these companies, but they're expecting the the owners to stay on. That's right. And, okay. And therein lies the disconnect. 
uh -huh. because as I mentioned in the article, um, what, what always has fascinated me, Andrew, is that uh, a seller, once I deliver a valuation analysis, they'll look at me and say, listen, I'm two to three, four years out. Just send me a note this fall and check up on me. And, Let's and stay in touch. That's right. <laughs> and literally, that might be on a Friday. And by Tuesday, they'll call and say, I've talked to my wife. Uh, I, you got to get me out of here. How quickly can you sell it? And it's wow. amazing to me. That's a pretty common story, huh? That's right. And so <laughs> I always say you're not ready until you are. And then it can't happen fast enough. So the disconnect is this. Let's say you, Andrew, were going to sell your business. And, and all of a sudden you're ready. And you know it's going to take 9, 10, 12 months from start to finish. And then a private equity group comes along and says, we want you. We're going to structure this. Uh, we're going to get you some cash up front. We're going to give you some stock. We're going to give you some performance incentives and uh, some nice targets to hit out in the future and a nice salary and some benefits, but we need you for three years. Mm. Well, now all of a sudden you as the owner are going to say, why am I going to stick around and make $150,000 a year instead of four, five, six hundred thousand $600,000 a year? And I'm essentially going to be doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So That's the, tough. Mo the moment that they have then is, why would I sell? Why don't I just keep it? Hmm. So the, the, the main takeaway from m and activity today is uh, they want a long-term partner and they're looking for an individual who's ready to take some chips off the table, but they're not ready to be done working. They, they want to continue to work. Is that because the expertise to run these niche businesses doesn't exist outside of the niche? No, I think it's because... Uh, as you know, this industry uh, chews people up and spits them out if sure you don't have a firm handle on it. And uh, owners get tired. They get tired. And that's the best way to say it. They'll call me and the, the biggest complaint I hear is I don't recognize the industry anymore. You've been doing this 35 years and I'm tired. Tell me about it. And you know, the, 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 right now, the guys who are really succeeding are the uh, mid-40s. They've, they've got a handle on all the technology. They understand it all. Um, they've been college educated. There's a level of sophistication there that they get yep. and they're not afraid of the TPAs because they grew up with them. You know, the vendors, that's their normal, you know, you instantly jump to 55, 60, 65 years old. It's all new to them. All new. Parts of it are new to me. You know, I can date myself with my age and, and it's, um, it's intimidating for a reason. Yeah. A lot of guys are just tired of the change. Well, a lot of guys does, won't recognize what this is right here. They don't want to touch one of these. That's right. right? And, and for those of you listening on the podcast later, I'm pointing to a Matterport camera and a Mavic 2 Pro drone. Uh, this, but this is, this is the state of the industry. This is what you need to do to, if you're doing inspections and writing estimates in this market, in this, in this new reality. And I've got guys that, that I mentioned the drone to and they're like, well, we don't need that. What do we need that? You know, I've, I've been climbing up on roofs for 20 years. You know, that, that whole thing. That's the mentality. You bet. It's a, yeah, it's a tough mental switch. Looking for that, Andrew, one of the things that always comes up is timing. Yeah. You know? Let's talk about that. Yeah. People will call and they'll ask, when is the best time to sell? Mm. And I, I can't answer that. You know, that's none of my business, quite frankly. And it, it, um, it's a very personal decision. But the best way to explain it to people is that there's really three aspects uh, of timing. 
And one is that, are you personally ready as right. an owner and a uh, likely a husband and a father and, and, um, are you ready to get rid of your baby? That's exactly right. And what I have found over the last 20 years is rarely is it a financial decision. Right. You know, many right. people in the industry have made decent money. This, this is not about putting an extra, you know, half million, million, million five in the, in the bank or, or, or more. It's about, um, is my wife ready to have me home? Is she ready to retire? Mm. What am I going to be when I get home? Right. You know, when I'm at work, I'm somebody. I've got this identity for sure. That's right. And it's, um, it's an interesting uh, dilemma they're in. Because, and you know the game. These guys at work, their opinion matters. They're the boss. They, the buck stops on their desk. Absolutely. And then they go home and they're told to mow the yard. <laughs> you know, it's, right. And it's, it's kind of a humorous example. But, um, here's, but it's true. Here's a real life example that drives the point home, Andrew. Um, 15 years ago, I sold a very large restaurant on the Oregon coast. Mm -hmm. And the owner of the restaurant was 83 years old. Wow. And she had had it 50 years. And we found You're the You're talking about Moe's, are you? Uh, not Moe's. This okay. is great, Gracie's. Okay. In, uh, yep. yep. In, uh, in the Depot Bay. Mm -hmm. And she's just a, an angel of a woman and an icon. And two weeks before closing, she called me and she was sobbing. Oh. And she said, JT, I can't sell. And I said, Gracie, what's the problem? And she said, I don't know who I am without my business. Mm. That's legit. That, that prompted an article that I wrote then and I've since updated called Without My Business, Who Am I? And it's a real scenario. And it, it's so I always tell people, you need to have a place to land. Right. If you're a little bit bored or you're a little bit frustrated, if you're a little bit confused or you want your margins to be a little better, you want a better quality of life, let's get some industry consultants in there. Yeah. You know, let's, if, you're, if you're working 30 hours a week, not 60, would you keep it? Oh, yeah. They say that'd be great. Well, <laughs> and let's not, let's not throw out the cash cow. So at what point is it really more of a business model and business acumen? versus, I'm not saying this correctly. I, I think there's a lot of folks out there that don't really know how to run a business, but they've been successful because they've been able to make the margins and, and wherever else. They've That's been right. air quotes successful because there's still, like you said, there's still money in the checkbook, um, but they don't have necessarily the sophistication that they need to package their business for sale. Is that That's accurate? right. And I, and I think the answer to a slightly different question, which I think is where you were going with it, is that it, it becomes sellable when it's not entirely dependent on, on you that as the owner. One, yes. yes. That's right. I, I, I got a call last week from a, 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 a hardware um, cleaning company, we'll say, in upper Midwest. And he was the sales manager, the GM, one of the techs, the marketing wing, it was everything. It was everything. Three other employees. <laughs> and so that's not a bad thing, but the numbers may put the value of that business up here. Mm. In reality, we'll put it just under that. It might be here. For sure. Because it, uh, you've got to be able to replace what's in that owner's head. And that's tough to do. Yeah. And unless you are, I would, I would say, unless you can step away from your business for two weeks, 
and it runs itself, you don't, you're not ready. You, you, you don't have the systems in place because I'm, I think about my business, my, my small consultancy. I write exactly made estimates, right? Uh, I couldn't sell it right now because there is nothing to buy. You know, there's, there's no real system. And if I, when I leave, there's very little work that gets done until I come That's back. Right. Uh, so until I hire myself or train myself, uh, yeah, I'm, I don't have a business. I don't, I don't have anything that's no one's going right. to, you know, I might be good looking, but no one wants to buy Andy McCabe. <laughs> well, I have, uh, I, I'm in the same boat as well. I sold my last business in, uh, 1999 that had employees and I vowed to myself I'd never have another employee again. There you and go. Knock on wood, it's uh, held true. So the, <laughs> the downside to that is that I'm a one horse show and, and I've got nothing to sell. Yeah. I have worked with companies that have five employees and it's got an absentee owner mm -hmm. and that's very sellable. On the other hand, right now working with a company doing 16, 17 million a year and the owners can't get away for more than a weekend. Uh and that's a sad situation. That's tough. So do you coach people through that? Or do you bring in outside help to coach people through that? that they, they, know, they know what we just said. They, they know intuitively, yes. we're not ready, but we want to be ready so bad. Do you, so do you coach people through that? Or you bring in outside consultants? What does that look like? Mostly the latter. Mostly okay. the latter. I, I've, I've owned and sold five companies in my life, but they've not been disaster restoration. Mm -hmm. So I am not an operations oriented sure. uh, individual to consult. And so many times this is about uh, trust and delegation and accountability mm. and culture. And although I can speak at a high level to those things and I could refer books and, you know, I can point them in the right direction. There are some fantastic industry consultants out there that can step in and say, here's the issues. Here's the team. Here's what you've got to let go of. Here's, you, know, you should be wearing four or five hats, not 18. Mm -hmm. And I have found uh, industry consultants can get right to the heart of the matter very quickly. You, very got, uh, you got anybody you can name drop for us? Uh, I won't. I've got okay. several. Okay. Um, but I've got... Uh, you don't want to show favoritism, I guess. That's right. There's, <laughs> and, and the reason I don't do that, Andrew, and I'll tell you, is, is there's obviously people in the industry who are very, very well established and we know who they are. They've been mm -hmm. around 30 years. And they've got teams yes. of you know, 8, 10, 12 people. And then there's individuals who have sold a company that uh, had to fight their way through some things and they might be a better fit mm -hmm. for this individual scenario. So there's probably five or six that I refer on a pretty regular basis. And I try to match the individual and their experience to the specific problem. Yes. Because what I don't like is consultants who come in and, uh, sell a package of services for three, four, five years. And they want to cookie cutter it and it's not really specific to the need. That's right. I want people to get in, fix it, monitor it for a bit and then get out on a, on a needed basis. Yeah. I know a guy that I won't drop his name either, but I will definitely, uh, if anyone has questions out there, uh, hit me up. Uh, if you're in Oregon or I guess he, he consults across the country. He owned a big franchise, uh, he did really well and now he's doing really well showing other people re rep replicating his success in other people's businesses. So, yeah. And I have referred that individual uh, four or five clients now and yeah. the feedback has been a plus plus. Oh, it's phenomenal. So yeah. he, he's a, he's an Oregon guy. So we, we'll just keep it at that. I think we're That's talking right. about the same guy. Uh, so good, good. Uh, what else? I'm surprised no one's asking any questions. Hey y'all in the, in the peanut gallery open up that Q and a section and, and get some, 
get some questions for us. Otherwise, we're going to run out of material real quick. Well, as we, as we wait on a question, Andrew, let me come back to the timing. Yes. Um, there was this per, there's this personal timing, which we just briefly talked about. And then there's business timing. Because the worst case scenario is the individual is ready. And they call and say, listen, I'm ready to go. I want to retire. Hmm. And then we take a look at their business. And it's not at all ready to sell. <laughs> and I can, I deliver a valuation and an analysis. The valuation is just the numbers. The analysis is essentially the preliminary due diligence on it that can tell you what's driving value, what's helping, what's hurting, what needs to be cleaned up, um, what, um, what a buyer's going to, uh, a buyer and their lender might get some heartburn from. Okay. And so I, I present this to them and it's a very educational piece and they say, okay, I'm ready. And it's pointed out that the business may not be ready. And that is the worst combination. It, mm. it doesn't mean that it's not sellable, but it's my job as, a, as an advisor to say, listen, right now you're worth 2.6 million and here's why. Now, if we fixed a few things, just due to organic growth and we fixed a few things, you might be worth 3.1 in another 18 months. Right. Would you like to go for that? What's that time worth to you? Yes. That's right. And there are people who say, no, it's not going to change my life. I'm, I'm ready to retire. And others will say, you know what, another five, 600,000 for another 18 to 24 months, I'll, I'll do that. Right. And that's okay. There's not a right or wrong answer. So um, if you envision two circles, you've got a personal circle and a business circle. When those two come together and they overlap, where they touch, that's where you get a great price for your business. Mm. And most people are, um, when they're ready, they want their business to be ready. Okay. And so my philosophy is let's get the business ready. Let's get it profitable. Let's get it cleaned up. Let's get a consultant involved. And then anytime you're ready to go, you can move your circle and touch the business circle. So now we're, we're good. But without the business being ready, you're at the mercy of your own uh, decision and mm. timing. And what people don't realize is that when they're ready, it's, it's always a future problem until they're ready. And then it's too late. And so once the business is ready, now we're just waiting for you to sort of join the party and whether that's six months or six years, it's okay. And where that's really come to light the last uh, two, three years is all the consolidation. Mm -hmm. I receive dozens of phone calls every year saying, um, Paul Davis just called interstate just called they, my competitor just called. Um, they wanted to, to make me an offer. They want to see if I'm interested in selling. What do I do? Uh, and it's, it's happened so often right now. It's driven a new service that I offer where I help people get ready to, to sell. And they're not, they're not on the market. They're not for sale. They're just prepared to sell. Right. And it's, um, it, it's been nice that it gives them the peace of mind that they're ready to go and they don't have to react to every phone call that comes in. What kind of changes does someone need to anticipate having to, to put into place? What is, what is the general metamorphosis from, hey, I just got an offer, I wasn't thinking about selling, now I am, to I'm ready to sell? Well, it's a great question and there's sort of a germination period in there. Most time, Andrew, the sellers will get two or three phone calls over a, a year long, two year long period. And then it, they, they it plants that seed. You better believe it. <laughs> and they've talked to their spouse. They've talked to maybe a wealth advisor or an estate planner, and they're just waiting for the right one. And I think 
uh, I think to clarify your question, what happens is there's four or five things that typically come up. Mm. They typically need to be fixed. And the big one is uh, the delegation and accountability. You know, any buyer wants to know that it's not based on the seller. Mm. And they want to see the system. They want to see the the hierarchy. Absolutely. uh, Absolutely. The SOPs. It's the, the least dependent that it is on the seller, the more sellable it is. Okay. You know, those systems and procedures. So in that same vein, we look at the strength of the management team, you know, the, the, the tenure and longevity and the qualifications, because that's really the, the machine that's driving uh, the bus forward. Mm-hmm. And then the professionalism, the systems and procedures. Um, uh, we can even drill down into mod rates and claims history. And, and, and really when we, when we get down in the weeds, how is the business run? You know, okay. Is it as effective as it looks on the outside? When we pull, pull back the sheets, what are we going to find? So of course, everyone wants a, a restoration company to make money. You sure. know, there's, it's, it's gotta be profitable. And then it boils down to um, how do you get the money? Is it direct work? Is it um, profitable? What's your, what's your service mix? Yeah, that's right. And you know, you take a company doing, let's say $3 million a year and it's 99% vendor work versus 99% direct work. Well, there's a price difference there. Two different things. Now let's, now let's say that 99% of that work would be alacrity. Mm. Okay. So you've got 90, 95% of someone's work is one vendor company. You think that's a, a lot risk of risk? That's a Absolutely. Risk now, are you going to turn it away? Probably not. But let's let's mitigate the risk. I mean, let's figure out a way to make some other money besides one vendor program. Right. There is something to be said that if someone can be successful on a program like that, <laughs> that builds the majority of their revenue, they're doing something right. That's right. That takes that takes an incredible amount of discipline and and systems just to keep the doors open That's on a right. program like that. Uh, so I, I, you know, don't, don't misunderstand us, all you folks out there that might be on that particular program. It take that, you know, good for you, good on you. If you're doing well on that, um, but don't miss the point. If you're, if that's the only thing you're doing, you need to diversify your, your revenue streams uh, today. <laughs> well, and that's one of the changes that we've seen since eight, nine or 10 as well, Andrew. And that is that is the revenue streams. Uh, the, the models have changed a little bit, meaning in eight, nine and 10, there are some people who sort of took a step back, mm. really focused on what they were good at their highest margins, uh, profit centers, and only focused on that. And that's what got them to survive. Yeah. Um, there are people now who are saying, I, I want to look at more program work. Um, there's another contingency that says, I want to look at less program work. Uh, there are some that'll say, I'm going to abandon my restoration and only go to the MIT side. Mm. And others will say, you know, to heck with the MIT, I'm going to stick with restoration. That's what I'm good at. Right. And so it, it's models have changed. It, it, you have to go into survival mode. But it doesn't mean that there's going to be a collapse. It doesn't mean that that um, we, we can't take a step in the right direction. It just means that you've got to stay open and creative to to keep making money. Let's uh, let's get your opinion on two different models. All right, sure. uh, the one you just mentioned. It's it's program heavy. Maybe it's just maybe it's not just one program, but it's it's a family. It's an umbrella of programs. They get 
pieces sure. and parts here, contractor connection, Alacrity, um, Premier PSP. There's still, there's still PSP in the world, right? Yeah. Just not here in Oregon, I don't think. That's right. Unless they restarted it. Um, so you got a guy that's doing that, but you also, then on the other side of the coin, uh, you have a guy that's that said exactly what you just said. I'm going to take my highest profit part of my business and I'm going to triple down on that and I'm going to move up market. Uh, one company I can, I can think of just comes to mind out of LA is the allied allied restoration said, we are going to chase one market. That's the high net worth market. We're going to service them to the best, you know, better than anyone else in the market. Yep. But they still, so they're full retail, full up market. So that let's say the two companies are doing the same volume. What, what is someone, uh, you, know, you know, maybe a, a, an M and a or, or a capital firm, what do they say when they see those two, two companies side by side? You're really after two sets of buyers or two different types of people. Okay. Um, it's almost like a, an independent versus a franchise model. Got it. You know, you've got a different set of buyers for each, um, depending on the mix of the vendor and TPA work. Um, it, whenever there's a, a piece, of that pie, let's say uh, your largest vendor TPA is uh, 15, 16% of what you're doing. That's sort of the limit where red flags start to pop up. You okay. hit 18 to 20%, uh, eyebrows are gonna go up. Um, so the, the vendor work is not bad, but if you can survive in that model and make good money at it, it's perfect. There's, it's, it's not a right or a wrong answer. Um, on the independent side, that, that is um, a fundamentally different model that in theory should be making uh, a higher profit margin, but you'd be surprised, uh, not often, mm. you know, or not always I'll say. And so it's, um, the, the, to specifically answer your question, the capital markets, the private equity market would prefer the private side of that, the direct work. Okay. Um, that is, they deem that to be more safe. It's more controllable. It, exactly, it comes down to control and predictability. Yeah, I get so, that. Yep. Get that 110%. Uh, and I've known several guys that have decided, Hey, we're, we're going to get out of this program stuff. Uh, and we might do, you know, oftentimes they do less volume, but they do, they bring more home at the end of the year. What I heard most often in eight, nine and 10 was I should have stayed smaller. I was making more money and I had a whole lot less headaches. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing wrong with that. Um, when it comes down to saleability and financeability, especially with the SBA, mm. and I'm trying to get current um, SBA data right now, in 8, 9, and 10, you could drop about 7% in gross sales. The SBA viewed that as level. That was sort of the, the new flat line was seven, a 7% drop. Below that, you had to have a great story to back it up. But so with, you're, you're talking about revenue history coming into the, the origination of the loan, they're looking back. So they're, that's right. The, so you're, what I just heard was in that looking back period, you could drop 7% and the SBA would say, you know, that's pretty normal. Essentially okay. no questions that'd asked. Be, that'd be flat. Okay. That's okay. right. And, and what I have found in the last 12 years of this industry is as long as there's a good story to back up any fluctuations, they're mm. going to be okay. Okay. Meaning we're coming off a very mild winter. There are parts of, of uh, New incredibly England. Incredibly mild, incredibly mild. There are parts of New England hadn't seen snow this year for the first time ever. Uh, their numbers are down right now. Uh, that's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't make it not financeable. It doesn't make it uh, not sellable. 
it just makes it, it we've got to tell the story a little better and there's nothing wrong with that you know anytime you put 20 30 years of blood sweat and tears on paper it deserves a good story sure a- absolutely yeah 100 100 uh speaking of the sba do you have any any opinion or guidance as far as our current you know we're in a pandemic we're all sitting at home uh yeah. and and there's this big stimulus package out there. A lot of it's going through the SBA. Do you have any, anything to say about that? I'm (laughs) I'm currently waiting for it. Okay. I'll I'll tell you when, when eight, nine or 10 happened, and this is one of the parallels, the saying was all, all boats rise with the tide, right? And and rising tide floats all boats. Yeah, that's right. And what happened was this industry stood out a little bit by the time we hit nine, 10, 11, it was a, it was a great industry to be in. And, my guess is that we're going to be in the same boat right now. Um, SBA lenders right now are a little bit reluctant to tell me what the new guidelines are. Mm. I think when we fast forward. That because they don't know? They probably don't. Uh, <laughs> I it, mean, it's, 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 it's evolving day by day by day. That's right. And, it's, and the, the, the lending packages, there's different forgiveness rates and different, I mean, the, the rates are some of the best ever right now. And they might even get better through the summer. Right, right. So it's, I'm hoping that we can go down to seven to 10% again in a dip. Um, That has never been a big issue with restoration companies. We know year over year, there's some pretty significant fluctuations. Sure. Um, But I think we've got to get at least a couple quarters under our belt uh, to be able to present to the SBA and say, this is what it's done to the industry. This is what it did to ABC restoration. Oh, you're, okay. So on the, on the, on the backside of, of COVID on the backside of all the lockdown, you're saying uh, the SBA is going to need to see a few months after the dust settles to, to figure out which, what the trajectory is. I won't put words in their mouth, but yes, that's my assumption. When we okay. get to like the end of May and see what uh, March, April, May numbers did, you know, let's, let's say end of Q2 in June, we'll be golden. Mm. We will know how it affected your business. Okay. And, and why we'll know, we'll know what uh, the hurdles were, whether you got around them, where you were picking up your work. Um, I, I think those June numbers are going to be critical. Perfect. Well, um, there is some, some light at the end of this tunnel. I saw at least in our state, uh, the, the number of infections has seemed to peak uh, and we may, you know, knock on some wood. We may be uh, coming on the other side of this thing. So uh, prayers go out to, to New York and Florida and all the places in California. Um, they still haven't seen the worst of it, but I hopefully I'm hoping we have here. Absolutely. You know, I hope you're right. It's um, it, it's going to be an interesting road the next uh, few weeks uh, for all of us. And, um, and then the question is, what does it mean long-term right. you know, for, for all of us listening and participating? It's, uh, it's going to have some reverb for months yet, if not years. If not years. If not, it's, it's, it's freaky. It, it scares you if you let it. Uh, but we're, we're in the industry where we run into uh, disasters. So this shouldn't be any different. Let's just face it and, and go forward. Well, we don't have any questions from the peanut gallery. Uh, you guys missed out. Amy had them right here. You could ask a question, but we will uh, we'll take it online. Maybe we'll revisit this if we get enough interest uh, down the road. Uh, I'd love to have you back on. It's uh, it's it's good having you as a resource for us as the industry as a whole as a whole. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me. 
what uh once you leave us with some some words of wisdom especially given current events um what what do guys need to be really concentrating on and what types of things can we just just let go i mean there's there's going to be trade-offs in this time period especially uh, of vital business activities and not so vital vital business activities so what uh where should, where should guys' heads be at right now? Well, I think I, if I had any words of wisdom that would resonate is that is that um, there's, there's a lot of people with question marks mm. and I would be transparent. Uh, ah. when, I, when I had uh, employees, I let them know um, the direction we were thinking, the direction we were going, where the hurdles were um, to leverage people who are on the front lines every day it is a wonderful resource. And I think too many people, uh, and not necessarily just owners, but leaders and managers in general, um, they want to keep certain employees insulated from some of these key decisions. But to be transparent about where the company mm -hmm. is, what it's facing, um, you know, we all know people who have been laid off and furloughed and, and it, it's an issue. It, it's uh, the employees go to work every day wondering if they have a job. Yeah, am I gonna, am I gonna have a job tomorrow? That's right. Uh, so, I think what you just said. Um, one of my favorite guys in the whole world, Simon Sinek. Absolutely, uh, wonderful. Game. Great, great book on that subject of, um, and even this and Leaders Eat Last, the uh, similar veins of. Yep. If you've got a problem that's going to affect the whole company, why don't you discuss it with the whole company? That's right. Uh, we are not. We're not isolated at the top of this pyramid as managers and owners. We, our people probably have answers that we wouldn't even think of, mm -hmm. uh, but we've got to trust them enough. With We've got to be vulnerable in this, especially this time. We've got to be vulnerable and open enough with our own employees uh, in, in to, to, to find the solutions that we all gonna, are going to need because there's going to be some hard, hard decisions. Well, and one of the things that happened in 8, 9, and 10, Andrew, was that um, owners were very, very slow to make changes to their companies. Uh, they would call me and say, listen, I've been losing money for seven months, and I know I should let these two people go or that individual go. Mm. And I'd say, well, where's the end of the tunnel? What, what are we doing to make money? And they'd say, well, we don't know where that is yet, but I don't want to let them go. So, you know, and I can't tell someone just to, you know, cut loose some employees that are great employees, no. but that's where some transparency can come in with, with here's the resources we have to work with. And especially when you're thinking of selling within a year or two, we can't have this stretch of, you know, eight, 10, 12 months where you're losing money. No, it's, it's suicide when you're thinking of selling. And so they were slow to hire and, and slow to fire Mm. and uh, not necessarily in that order. So, and I think with, with the job costing um, tools that we have today, I'm encouraging the transparency and act quickly. You know, act quickly because uh, a lot of times survival will depend on it. Uh, yeah, make a decision. The, the road of life is paved with squirrels that couldn't make a decision. So right, wrong, or indifferent, make a decision. That's right. choose, choose a course of action. And and correct if you have to, but at least you're, you're moving in a direction. Mm -hmm. uh, I like to say, uh, I like to say, uh, fail fast, fall forward. Bingo. Uh, yeah. just, yeah. And, and that's, you know, a lot of what's kept me afloat over the years is I had no idea what the right decision was to do, but I made a decision. 
And sometimes it worked out, sometimes it didn't, but at least I was, I was not where I was. I was in a different spot and able to make a different decision. Uh, we get too many times, I think we just get the decision paralysis and we don't make a decision. Well, that's not good for anybody. We're not, we're not growing, we're not moving. Um, like a shark, shark dies at a standstill. It's got to keep moving. Did I throw well, enough analogies out there? Yeah. <laughs> and if people are struggling with that decision, again, there's some great consultants that can come in and help make sense of that. All kinds. There really are. All kinds. But yeah, uh, yeah a lot you got of talent out there. Get what you pay for. You mentioned yeah. job costing software. I know we were about to go, but um, interesting. What what tools are there available now for for job costing and things like that? Well, it's, it's evolving to me, Andrew. It's uh, eight or 10 years ago, lots of people had some software. They didn't know how to use it. Right. They would run it parallel with QuickBooks and they'd run it. Uh, they do this piece of their software here and this piece here and they weren't talking. And so there's all these reports that need, would need to be generated. Now yeah. I think there's a much bigger emphasis on really getting top-notch training, dedicating some, some, man, some office man hours, let's say, or woman hours to the software and getting useful data, not just a dashboard on your de desk that right. you thought the bank wanted to see. It's useful data to make real-time decisions. Are there, are there packages out there? Are there software companies that, that are focusing on this? Are they, are they big accounting software stuff uh, or you know, all over the map? Well, we know that the, there are several industry packages out there. Okay, and yeah. it, it's, it boils down to, can you take the time to learn how to use them? Got it. It's, you know, I've asked, uh, this will floor you, Andrew. I've asked people who do a, you know, million two, million five a year. And I, end, I ask them for their P&Ls and balance sheets. They have no idea what I'm talking about. Get out of here. That's right. And it's a, a, a general ledger. It does and blow me away. Wow. It, it's, it's happened. And they can't prove anything to anybody except a column or piece of paper that they've got in the office. Ooh. And it, it floors me actually. And, and that's, that's not sellable. You know, it just isn't. No. It's, it's not like, um, you know, there's guys who specialize in, let's say, the convenience store market, and which is dominated by international buyers. Yep. And, and the only question that that international buyer will ask initially is tell me the, the square footage of that space and what's their gross sales. Gross sales per square foot. That's all they want to know because they know exactly what the margins are for the JoJo's in the in the uh, by the front counter and the yep. cigarettes and the deli and the they know exactly where they should be on the bottom line. I love me and, some JoJo's. And we're not we're not quite there yet in, this, in that industry. <laughs> no, we're not. So, how how are we not? How are we not grown up yet? Well, and it, that's also shocking to me. And I look at. Any in any given year, I work with twenty to thirty different companies, and you line up these twenty to thirty companies. There's fifteen to twenty different ways that they'll run their accounting, wow. and the adjustments that they make, both on the P and L, and then by the time it gets to the balance sheet, how are they accounting for WIP? What are mm -hmm. the uh, overhead recovery adjustments on a on a um, a P and L? That's been a big one uh, the last few years, and so. It's amazing to me. There's so many methods on how to track uh, these jobs and the adjustments that are made. So wow. I, I give it the next three to five years. I, I hope that we're primarily all on the same page. Got it. Well, there's, there's something to be said about working this system. I sat down with, uh, at the time, the largest uh, Serpro franchisee, uh, I think in the country or at least on the West Coast. I was in Phoenix. 
Um, and, and I said, well, how do you, how do you get this big? How do you get this successful? And, and the owner pointed behind her on this bookshelf and it was all the, it was all the franchise documents, all the SOPs. She said, that's why we're so successful. Yeah. When we get away from that, when we get away from our SOPs, we fail. That's why people fail. They don't, they don't follow their, the rules they have set or they don't have any rules set to begin with. That's right. To be start out with. So get, choose a system. Once again, make a choice, choose a system, but then buy into the system, use it. Don't, I mean, there's ton, tons of guys that pay for Xactimate that don't know how to use a program. They feel like they just needed to have Xactimate. Well, it does you no good. It's like buying a Lamborghini that sits in the garage. You're not, why you own a Lamborghini if you can't drive it? That's right. Well, and so many have, you know, this happens in the industry. Uh, guys will pick up a package or a software. Uh, they'll implement something new, but they don't have time to dedicate to it. Right. And then oddly enough, it fails. And then, uh-huh. it's, and then it's the system's fault. <laughs> yeah, so right. Oh, well, we tried that software package. It, yeah. It was crap. Well, how much time did you spend on it? None. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, another word of advice would be to, to dedicate some time. Give it a chance. Perfect. All right, JT, you've been awesome. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you being a a resource to this industry. Uh, We will link up whatever uh, you want us to link up. I'm going to have some questions for you once we get offline. Perfect. Uh, Thank you. Packages. This is, this will be live on, uh, well, live. It'll be recorded on iTunes. So look up the Claim Clinic. Um, there's also the claim.clinic is the website. Uh, what is your website and how can people get a hold of you, JT? It's uh, website is exitstrategies360.com and uh, the email address is info at exitstrategies360. That's 100% confidential to me. Uh, everything I do is 100% confidential with respect to communication. I only use cell phones. And um, any questions of me, holler. It's uh, simply a conversation uh, between the two of us, and it, it starts and stops on my desk. Perfect. Perfect. Thanks, man. It's, it's been great having you, and, uh, and take care. All right. Thank you, Andrew. All the best.